the opportunity to come and speak to you this weekend. Uh, it's after lunch, and uh, I know the uh, uh, we we get a little weary after lunch. So by by God's grace, he'll he'll keep us with it, and uh, I promise I won't go as long this afternoon as I did this morning. But, uh, I wanted us to look, normally in this time I think you have a missionary biography and those are all they're very good and uh, inspiring. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of a vignette from the scriptures of uh, the kind of man that I think the Lord uses. And uh, whether it be in a missionary context or just in the context in which we all live, most, most of us anyway, uh, uh, just in a daily kind of context uh, in, in the church and in our lives. Uh, and uh, I think there's a good example for us. It's in Acts chapter 6. Uh, so if you'll turn there, I just want to read the first seven verses uh, and uh, speak a little bit to you on Philip. I think in the book, uh, in, your, uh, uh, in your bulletin, it says Stephen, but I, but I actually would like to talk a little bit about Philip this morning or this afternoon. Uh, Chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, this was after Pentecost and the Jerusalem church had formed, a complaint by the Hellenists, these were the Greek speakers there in in, uh, Jerusalem, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Jeff Thomas has done a, what I think is a very useful study of the Samaritan revival that happened uh, in Samaria, according to the Lord's promise, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And Acts chapter 8 chronicles a bit of that missionary revival uh, in Samaria in uh, chapter 8. And uh, in that study, uh, Jeff takes a look at Philip, the one who is called Philip the Evangelist. So I'm kind of piggybacking a little bit on some work that Jeff did. Uh, and I wanted to draw out just a, a picture, uh, sort of threefold pr- picture of the kind of man that I believe the Lord uses in his church. Philip is described, along with the other deacons, as particularly suited for the work in the church as a man of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. That's Acts 6 and verse 3. Philip and the others had already distinguished himself in the church. In other words, he had a reputation for godliness. He had a, ver- a reputation for spirituality. And he had a reputation w- for wisdom. Now this was before Philip really ever did any of the evangelistic work 
uh, for which he's named. He has that reputation or that name, Philip the Evangelist. But this was before that, uh, just as a churchman, just as a regular uh, member of, uh, of the church there in Jerusalem. And uh, he's described, along with Stephen and the others, as a man full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, that can mean a variety of things, and particularly in our charismatic day, it usually uh, refers to uh, doing a lot of wild and crazy things. And I don't think that was the case with Philip. Uh, we've seen that word or that phrase used before in Acts chapter 4, and I won't turn there, but Acts chapter 4 and verse 8 was used to describe Peter when he and John were brought under uh, arrest uh, by the Jerusalem council. And, uh, and uh, Phil, uh, Peter res- responded uh, with witness. And uh, a re- in the, in the scriptures say, uh, 4 and verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And in that uh, passage, of course, he uh, speaks of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. It's really a marvelous testimony under fire, under pressure, under persecution uh, that Peter uh, and John gives. One of the things we have to remember about the book of Acts is that uh, we know the end of the story. Okay, We know the gospel went out and we, we know all of those extraordinary things that happened. But the men who were actually experiencing it, the men who were actually going through it, Peter and John and the other, they had no idea what, was, uh, what the end result was going to be. Uh, Peter and, and uh, John, I'm sure, looked to the fact that when they gave their testimony, it, per, it might be the last words they ever spoke. And the, full, uh, the fullness of the Spirit enabled Peter uh, to give witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was, of course, a fulfillment of a promise that the Lord had, ga- uh, had given already to the disciples, that he would give them voice, he would give them uh, uh, power for witness, and so... Uh, Peter had that. So that's one meaning of full of the Spirit. I'm not sure that's what it, what's uh, being referred to here with Philip. Uh, another, uh, we all know, of course, that no one can be a Christian without being united to Christ by the powerful work of the Spirit. So in a sense, every Christian is full of the Spirit in the sense that you've been united by the Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about here uh, either. I think here in Philip's case, the phrase seems to refer to maturity in the faith over time. In other words, the church recognized in him a spiritual maturity that set him apart in some sense from other men. We might say that in Philip they saw a man who was characteristically putting sin to death in his life. Uh, One presenting his body as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. One who was bearing with the failings of the weak and not pleasing himself, Romans 15.1. Someone working out his salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Or perhaps a man pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he was known and he had a reputation for being a spiritual man. Uh, a man who was full of the scriptures. You know, you ask, how, how can I be a spiritual man? Well, we have a very good book here. And uh, to be in this word, 
to be putting sin to death by the word of God, to be starving our sins by the word of God, as one uh, very good author has, uh, has put it, a lady, Rosaria Butterfield, speaks about the way you put sin to death, the way you, you, is you starve it by the scriptures. You be a man of the scriptures, you be a woman of the scriptures, and uh, putting our minds underneath the word of God. Uh, if you're a young man uh, here today, quite often I'm, I'm asked uh, by young men, how, how can I grow? How can I find out what the Lord's call on my life is? Psalm 25, I think, answers that question. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will show him the way that he has for him. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Are you coming up under his word, submitting to it with your, your heart and your mind and saying, not just once, but many times in your life, what, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do to submit to the Word of God? I, uh, I really appreciate in those uh, passages where uh, the Lord describes the angels meeting with Mary first, you know, in Luke chapter 1, and then in Matthew 1 when, when the angel meets with Joseph. And their responses uh, were identical. Remember Mary said, let it be to me according to your word. Basically, what you say, Lord, goes. And Joseph the same way. He heard the message, he got the instruction, and he immediately obeyed the Lord. So what does it mean to be a spiritual man? Well, you're, you're, you're an obedient man. You come to the word of God and you say, Lord, what would you have me to do here? How would you have me to think? Uh, that's what we see, what we seem to see in Philip, as a man full of the Spirit, I think is a man to be full of Christ. A man to be full of Christ and His Word. So that's the first trait, is uh, full of the Spirit and wisdom. But I want to point out something else as well. I think we can also notice in Philip the Christ-likeness of humility. Philip is obviously a gifted man, and his evangelistic giftedness is displayed in Samaria and then later in Caesarea, where he has won the title, Philip the Evangelist. That's in Acts chapter 21. But here in Acts 6, we see a man willing to be a servant and to take a low place in ministry. Uh, if you'll keep your finger here at Acts and just uh, turn or just let me read uh, Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, uh, we have one of those parables that uh, as you read the Bible, you come to this parable, you go, I've never seen this before. Uh, I had that experience several years ago. It come to this parable, and, well, I, I didn't even know that parable was here. L listen to it. Uh, in verse, uh, verse 7, chapter 14, Luke 14, it says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Uh, this this uh, parable came home to me several years ago I, uh, when I was teaching, before I was in the ministry. And uh, the last year uh, that I taught at Sandy Creek High School there in Tyrone, uh, I, was, uh, I was teaching seniors. And at the end of the, uh, of the school year, they would have what was called the senior banquet. And, uh, and uh, all the senior teachers would be sitting on the uh, you know, the table at the, at the front, and it was, it was kind of lifted up, it was up on the stage, and it was, you know, sort of the place of honor, and they would introduce the teachers and so forth. Well, we were beginning the, the dinner, and people were getting their plates and everything, and I got my plate, and I had my designated spot there, and uh, the principal came to me and said, uh, Hank, we've had somebody show up uh, from the county office that we weren't expecting uh, would you mind giving up your place and letting them uh, sit here? And I said, sure, that's no problem. And uh, so I picked my plate up and I began to walk. And as I walked away from the table, I noticed people were looking at me. And, uh, and, I, and the thought went through my head, they probably think that I wasn't supposed to be up there. And, uh, and, and now the principal had come and put me to the lower place. And I thought about this parable. You know, the, and, I, and I wasn't actually seeking the high place, but I felt at that moment as though perhaps I was. And that uh, the principal was saying, no, no, you're, you're supposed to be in a lower place. And, and what the Lord is saying here is it is much better to take the low place. Take the low place. Take the lowest place that you can, and the Lord will move you up. According to his will, according to his prayer. And I think that's what happens with Philip. Philip is willing to do a lowly thing. Notice here, uh, he is useful in diffusing, in Acts chapter 6, what could have been a power keg, powder keg situation in the early church. These, uh, uh, the, these, uh, the difficulties between these two sets of widows, Hellenists and Hebrews, and the Hebrews are getting all the good stuff, and we're not... You know, we're sort of the second-class citizens in the church. You know how things happen in churches. People get upset about the color of the carpet or, what, you know, whatever. And there are all sorts of things to complain about. And here's a complaint. And we don't know the truthfulness of it or not, but, but Peter, uh, Philip is one of those uh, who we think volunteers to get into this sort of uh, nitty-gritty part of ministry that... Uh, is not going to be something that's looked at and people are going to applaud and tell him what a great speaker he is and all of that. Uh, but he's just going to do this dirty work. It's the kind of ministry that the Lord was calling his disciples to constantly, particularly so in the last night before the cross. It's one of those events that it's really hard for us to fathom. The Lord is uh, at table with his disciples, and uh, he's speaking to them about what that table really meant, what that Lord's Supper really meant, what he was going to do uh, in just a, a few short hours, and what are the disciples doing? They're arguing. We see that in Luke's, in Luke's gospel. They're, they're arguing about who's going to have the top place. And that's when, in my mind, that's when Jesus gets up from the table, puts on the, the apron, the servant's apron, and then goes around and begins to wash the disciples' feet and telling them, that's what I've come to do for you, and you must do for others. 
that Christ-like humility. And I think uh, Philip is a good example of that. He's able, he's, he does the lowly thing. And I think we also note his uh, humble obedience in his mis- ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts chapter 8. You remember that. Uh, the Lord calls him through an angel to rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's Acts 8.26. Now you remember that Philip has been involved uh, in some ministry there in Samaria uh, that is very fruitful. People are coming to faith in Christ and there's a bit of revival there in Samaria. And Philip's involved in that. And all of a sudden the angel comes to him and says, I want you to go down the road to the south to that deserted place, it's desert really, and, uh, and, and do something there that I want you to do. Now Philip could have said, if he was like me or somebody else, he would have said, now Lord, don't you know what's going on here? We, we got some good ministry going on here. People are getting saved and they're responding to the word of God. Look at these crowds and everything. We, we got something good going here. We need to stay here and do this. That's the sort of thing I would say, probably. Uh, but Philip said... Philip doesn't say anything. What does he do? He goes. He goes. He obeys the Lord, and uh, he goes. And you know the story of what happened. The one man, the one Ethiopian eunuch riding along. Philip asked him, what are you reading? He goes up and explains to him from Isaiah 53, no doubt, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably, we don't know, we're speculating, but the Ethiopian eunuch on his way to Ethiopia uh, goes there and becomes a, 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 someone who would preach and teach to the Ethiopians around him. One man, one encounter, and the Lord chose Philip and said, You go, Philip obeyed and went. The humble obedience of a servant. Humility, humility, as one man has said, is an emptying grace. It's an emptying grace. The Lord gives grace and gives a joy, peace, patience. In a sense, humility is an emptying of ourselves. It makes no demands, does not seek the highest place, but rather is content to fill a low place in the kingdom, awaiting the master's call to any place of service. It's the kind of man that God uses. Finally, we might note Philip's faithful perseverance in the ministry. After the revival in Samaria and the one-person ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip pretty much vanishes from the pages of Scripture. But with the testimony we do have, we can surmise a faithful, persevering ministry. He ministers along the, clo- along the coast until he comes to Caesarea, chapter 8, verse 40, and there he seems to settle down, all the while earning that title, Philip the Evangelist, referred to above. He also raises a family, a troop of believing daughters, themselves useful in the kingdom of the Savior. Remember, he had four daughters who prophesied. And I won't go there, but they were useful uh, in, the king, in, in the kingdom. And so he raises them. He settles down and he raises He perseveres, in other words. He keeps going in that humble obedient service to the Lord. We live today in entrepreneurial, consumer-driven, self-seeking days in a lot of ways. And sometimes that mentality can seep 
into the church as those aspiring to do great things in the kingdom of God. Some can put themselves forward, eager to showcase their gifts. But Philip shows us, by the Lord's grace, another way. He was willing to take the lower place and simply serve. What will you have me do was his mindset. And that's been true of many of Christ's choicest servants down through the years who had to wait in order to prove themselves useful. Moses, Joseph, Paul, Barnabas. All of those men had to wait, some of them for many, many years. Moses was 80 when his real ministry, we might say, began. That humble, obedient, persevering spirit is the character of our Lord. That's Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the kind of man that God uses.